Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 9. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, as we just sang, we desire to follow you. We desire to follow your inspired and errant word, to trust what you have written, to trust what you have set before us, and to trust your guidance in our lives. Father, we see an incredible example of this in the life of Nehemiah. May we learn from this man and imitate those areas where he honors you. May we learn to lead better, sometimes even in the face of criticism. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So many of you are undoubtedly leaders. You're in leaders in your home, in your school, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in recreation activities. You lead in a wide variety of ways. And any of us who lead in some capacity or another know that when we lead, there are always couch spuds who know very little about where we're going. They've done little research about how we have set the course in front of us, and yet they have criticism to offer. They lob gossip and innuendo in our way, and they attempt to stop the progress. It's inevitable if you're going to lead that someone will get in your face or go behind your back and try and take you down. I think of some great leaders in history. I think of Columbus. When Columbus set out to sail the ocean blue, you remember that he had lots of detractors. Columbus lived in a day and age when many believed that the world was not round, it was not a sphere, but in fact, it was flat. Columbus lived in a day and age when many taught that if you sailed far enough, you would come to the end of the earth and you would go over to your doom and your destruction. When Columbus set out for the brave new world, many laughed, many mocked, many jeered. In fact, the only people predominantly who didn't laugh were his crew. They were fearful, wondering if Columbus was right or wrong. Would they go over the edge of the earth? Would they lose their lives? But it's not just Columbus. I think of Thomas Edison, a great American inventor, a man that for every invention failed and failed and failed and failed and failed again. When Thomas Edison first created the light bulb, the illumination was so dull, it was so dim, that in the evening you actually needed an oil lamp to see the illumination of the electric light. And everyone mocked it. It was an invention that would have no practicality whatsoever in this world. And yet we live by the invention of Thomas Edison. I think of 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, 
a couple brothers wasting three years of their lives on a flying machine. Three years to build a flying machine so that they could soar like birds, they could soar like eagles, and they soared for 59 seconds until they crashed. It's a good thing David Letterman wasn't around. Undoubtedly, they would have made the top 10 dumbest things that any human has ever done. And number one, here we have the Wright brothers. But it's not just in the secular world, it's also in the sacred world. I think of Jesus. Jesus was often jeered for his miracles, for his dependence upon God, for the things that God laid on his heart. I think of Acts chapter 8, the end of the chapter. Jairus' daughter has died. The professional mourners are there. They're wailing and they're crying for a Daenerys or two. And then Jesus comes. Jesus tells the crowd that no, she is no longer dead, but she is alive. She will rise again. And what do the professional mourners do? They laugh, they mock, they cheer, they jeer. And yet the resurrection took place. I think of Acts chapter 26. Paul is before the governor, Festus, and he, and he says to the governor, there is a resurrection, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And do you remember what the governor says? He says, you are out of your mind. Your great learning, Paul, has resulted in you being out of your mind. And there was mockery from the highest levels. And yet Paul changed the world. That's what it takes to lead. It takes being out front. Sometimes it takes enduring the mockery and the jeering and the antagonism, the criticism, the gossip that comes when you're out front and you're doing something, especially for the kingdom. Sometimes we have cliches. I think cliches are those statements that we often say, but we don't think about them, and we ought. One cliche I often hear in the church is something that goes like this. If God is in it, he'll open the door. And if God's not in it, he'll close the door. I'm glad Nehemiah didn't follow that advice. In fact, how many saints in Scripture have faced closed doors, but God has laid something on their heart, and they continue to press, and they continue to push, and they continue to move forward, and they burst the door open. What I see in Scripture is God saying things like this. If you're going to, to do something great for the kingdom, you need perseverance. Because perseverance builds character, and character builds hope. And hope advances. Hope advances. So sometimes the doors are shut because God wants to bring character and build character and perseverance in our life. And sometimes we push against the doors multiple times before they are flung open. I would say that's the life of Nehemiah. Let's pick up in our text. I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll look at the first 
three verses. Now when Sanballat, we've already met him. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. He's an appointee of King Artaxerxes. So he actually works for the same boss that Nehemiah does. But Sanballat in Samaria has been taking advantage of the Jews for decades. He's overtaxing them, overworking them, raiding them. And the last thing he wants are walls rebuilt. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? You see, Sambalat is a bit of a historian. He knows that the walls have laid in ruins for 141 years. He knows that Right now, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, chapter 3. Two and a half miles of walls, 40 sections, 10 gates, all being built at the same time. Much of it on virgin area, not following the pattern of the former destroyed walls. He knows that when Nebuchadnezzar, 141 years earlier, destroyed the walls, he burned them. And so the limestone which is particularly susceptible to heat, it destroyed the limestone, the very stones that would rebuild the walls. And he says, don't they understand? There's no structural integrity. This is a waste of time. And he mocks them and he jeers them. And then his sidekick, Tobiah, he steps in. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone walls. Last week, we looked at chapter 3. In chapter 3, we saw that they began the rebuilding of the walls. It'll take a little over 50 days. Rank amateurs. Out of the 40 groups that are building, we have no structural engineers. To our knowledge, we know of no advanced carpenters. We have Nehemiah orchestrating 40 sections of walls, 10 gates, all simultaneously. He's got the materials needed to build. He's got the plan. He's got the organization. And the work is going forth. And so we have Sambalat, and he's upset. He's thinking of the bottom line. He's thinking of the taxes he will lose, the people he will no longer control. You remember in chapter 2, verse 10, when Sambalat first meets Nehemiah, Sambalat actually goes to Jerusalem, and he mocks the plan and he's annoyed. By chapter 2, verse 17, he's no longer annoyed. He's amused. He's laughing. He's jeering. This plan is pie in the sky. It'll never happen. There's no way these walls, after 141 years, are going to be rebuilt. There's no specialists. There's no engineers. There's no construction crews. It'll never happen. And he's laughing. He's laughing it up big time. But by chapter 4, now he's enraged. He's angered. He's trying to save face. The last time he's mocking, he went to Jerusalem. He mocks face to face. Notice where he is in verses 1, 2, and 3. He's back in Samaria. He's in the army barracks. He's with his guys. 
He's trying to save face. You see, he's used to being obeyed. He's the governor of Samaria. Back in chapter 2, he told Nehemiah to rebuild the walls as an act of treason. And Nehemiah ignores it. Nehemiah has papers from King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was the prime minister. He was the second most powerful man. He lived in the citadel of Susa, 800 to 1,000 miles away. He's not going to listen to Sanballat, a small-time governor of a small-time providence of Samaria. And so Sanballat, who is used to being obeyed, he's used to being followed, he's used to being listened to, is relegated to back-alley slander and gossip. I pray that that would not be true of us. That when things don't go our way, in order to save face, we go to the back alley. We go to the gutter. We go and slander and talk behind people's back. That's what Sambalit has been reduced to. But if you're going to lead, if you're going to be a Nehemiah, if I'm going to be a Nehemiah, we need to know there will be opposition in our lives. Listen to the words that Paul uses. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. If you and I are going to lead in whatever capacity God sets on our heart, we need to know that criticism is going to come. Criticism comes from individuals in the back room who have low self-esteem, who don't have God driving their hearts, and so they become critical of others who are led by the Lord. Listen to the words of the poet. I stood on the streets of a busy town, watching men tear a building down with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell. They swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman of the wrecking crew if these men were skilled enough to build two. Oh no, he said, no indeed. They're unskilled labor for that's what I need. I can tear down as much in a day or two as would take skilled men a year to do. And then I wondered as I went on my way, just which of these roles do I really play have I walked life's road with special care? Have I measured each deed with rule and square? Or am I the one who roams church and town content with the work of tearing down? Sambalat was content with the work of tearing down, tearing down the work of God through Nehemiah. Let's look at some of Sambalat's questions in verses 2 and 3. First, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? The idea of feeble is a, a word out of the construction world. It's of building a house without beams. It's of building a house without structural support. It's building a house that when you have the wolf come and he puffs and he huffs, the whole house collapses. It's that kind of word. When used of a human... It means a person who lacks gumption. It's almost laughable, isn't it? If there's any person who has gumption, it's Nehemiah. 
I mean, he was the prime minister. He was the cupbearer. He was the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. God laid on his heart to leave it all, to set it aside. He will remain for 12 years in Judea. He's leaving the good life behind. He's traveling 800 to 1,000 miles away to restruct walls that have been in ruins for 141 years for people who are lawless. If there's ever a man with gumption, it's this particular man. Yet Sembala doesn't care about the truth. He's just lobbing mortars. He's trying to take a leader down. Notice his next two questions. They're Hebrew idioms. They're interesting. Essentially, he says, is God in this? It's rhetorical. He says, absolutely not. God's not in this. This is Nehemiah's pie-in-the-sky plan. God has no intention of rebuilding the walls. Don't follow Nehemiah. He's wasting your time. He's not a leader. God doesn't play Lincoln Logs. God doesn't care about the rebuilt walls. It's a mockery of what God has laid on Nehemiah's heart. But notice, Sambala says, their walls, the walls that belong to Nehemiah, the walls that belong to the Jews, Sambala doesn't understand. The walls aren't God's, or excuse me, aren't man's, they are God's. The idea is, Sambalat says, don't get involved. These walls belong to the Jews. They belong to Nehemiah. But Nehemiah says, no, the walls aren't mine. They're God's. So when Sambalat, when he takes on Nehemiah, when Sambalat takes on the Jews, he's taking on God. This causes me to step back. This causes me to think. Sometimes sister churches have initiatives. Sometimes fellow Christians have initiatives. Maybe there's missionary initiatives. Maybe there's outreach initiatives. Maybe there are initiatives in the community or maybe in the world. Maybe they're not initiatives that I would readily get involved in. And the temptation might be for some of us to lob mortars, to say, you know what, God's not in that. That's what Sam Bollett's doing. God's not in that. But the walls do not belong to Nehemiah. The walls do not belong to the Jews. The walls belong to God. And when I stand against Christian initiatives, whether here in our country or across the world, and I stand against that, I speak against that, I become slanderous towards that, I might find myself opposing God who has called for the walls to be built or rebuilt, I need to be very careful of a critical spirit towards initiatives that I'm not a part of. Sambalat was not careful. The final derisive question in verse 2 is that this project is more complicated than the Jews think. He's implying that Nehemiah hasn't thought this through. But we know otherwise. We know that there was four months of mourning, fasting, and praying. Four more months of plotting and praying and planning and preparation. Then the travel. Then three more days. And then he unleashes 40 groups plus 10 more for the gates over two and a half miles of a very carefully thought out plan. Sam Bollett says he hasn't thought through it. In fact, he has. 
Sambalat says the ruins, they're beyond repair. Then we have Tobiah. He's the sidekick. I've suggested a couple times that Tobiah is a little light in the gray matter department. I, I love his zinger. Oh, it's a tough one. Yeah, the rocks are so ruined, a fox will collapse them. He might need to work on his put-downs. But that's the way slander comes. It comes in groups. It's a group getting together and speaking ill, in this case, of what God is doing. I love the way D.L. Moody puts it. He said, the devil, Satan, he never kicks a dead horse. He doesn't. He comes after real players. He comes after individuals who are moving, who are shaking, who are impacting the kingdom. He comes after Nehemiah. Maybe he comes after some of you when you are being used by God in powerful ways. Look at how Nehemiah responds to the criticism. Let me read verses 4 to 6. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I think many of us can relate to the text. Nehemiah is taken back. He is attacked for doing the Lord's will. So what does he do? He hands it over to the Lord. He says, Lord, this is not my issue. This is yours. Now some have looked at Nehemiah's prayer and they said, man, that's kind of sub-Christian. That belongs with the imprecatory Psalms. That's the vengeful God. That's the, the God of the Old Testament. Thank goodness. God has grown up a little bit, and now he's not vengeful in the New Testament. Thank goodness we have a different God. That's how some look at some of these texts. And yet God responds four times in Scripture. Hebrews 13.8, I am the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. This isn't a vengeful God. This is a God who is burning for the righteousness of his people and those he creates. This is the God that we read about in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 6, the 10 verse. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This is the God that cares for righteousness, so much so that he will bring justice and so Nehemiah prays to this God. He says, Lord, what's going on in Sambalat's heart is he's not attacking me. He's attacking you. The plan to build the walls, you gave me. The command to build the walls, you commissioned. You gave me the marching orders. This is your righteousness that is being impugned. You, Lord, take care of it. You see, when you and I face criticism and we will, we need to evaluate whether the criticism is fair or not. When it's fair, we need to confess, we need to repent, pay remuneration if necessary, a mid-course correction. But sometimes, as in the case for Nehemiah, the criticism isn't fair. The criticism actually belongs to God. Sambalat is opposing God 
And so what does Nehemiah do? He says, Lord, this is on you. You take it. You do it. You handle the situation. It reminds me of John chapter 2. You remember John chapter 2. Jesus went up on the temple mount. While he was up there, he went to the temple and he saw that Caiaphas and Ananias had taken the court of the Gentiles, the only place where the world could gather corporately in worship at the temple and praise the Lord, that section, and they had turned it into a den of thieves. They were selling animals at exorbitant prices for the sacrifices. People would come from all over the world and they'd say, oh, man, your currency isn't good here, but we have a table over here. We'll exchange your currency for a markup. And they were hitting the poor people twice. They were getting them on the markup of the currency, and then they were selling the animals for exorbitant prices. And you remember what Jesus did. He overturned the table. He created a bullwhip. He drove the people out, and he said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. He was concerned for the glory, the righteousness, the holiness of God's name. That's exactly what happens for Nehemiah. He's concerned for the glory of God, and he says, Lord, this is on you. You need to take care of these people. And then he continued to work. Look at verse 6. It's very exciting. The walls are halfway up. I mean, in the beginning of chapter 3, they haven't been started. By the time we get to chapter 4, verse 6, we're halfway through of the completion. Things are going pretty well. God is at work, and, and Nehemiah is, is being used by God in a mighty way. And then we get to verses 7 to 9. There we have the criticism growing even more. Let me read it. Verse 7. Oops, wrong book. Verse 7. I'm about to read to you Revelation. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, that's a word that means Philistines, they're on the west, on the Mediterranean. When they heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the beaches were, or the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them both day and night. The opposition is growing. You remember in chapter 2, verse 10, the opposition has two people. It's Sanballat and it's Tobiah. By the end of chapter 2, the Arabs have joined. By the end of chapter 4, now we have five different people opposing the work. Because remember, as... D.L. Moody said, Satan doesn't kick a dead horse. As we move forward, as we are being used by God, the opposition grows. And so now we have five people opposing the work. And they're all surrounding Jerusalem. We have Sambalat and Tobiah and Samaria in the north. We have the Arabs in the south. We have the Amorites in the east. We have the Astrodites or the Philistines in the West. They've got the city completely surrounded. And so what does Nehemiah do? He prays. You see that in verses 7 and following? He prays and he grabs a sword. You see both? It's a beautiful mixture 
of heaven and earth, a beautiful mixture of dependence on God and utilizing the giftedness that he has entrusted to us. It's kind of like this. If you have children or grandchildren and you want to raise them well, you pray and you read Dobson, right? (laughs) If you have a kitchen and it catches on fire, you pray, you dial 911 and you get the fire extinguisher. If you're leading a Bible study, you pray and you study. Not that long ago, I heard of a pastor, and he was asked, what are you preaching tomorrow morning? He was asked Saturday afternoon, and he said, I don't know. God hasn't told me yet. And that may sound very spiritual, except God can move in our hearts days, weeks, and months before, and he's given us the resources to work. I think it's presumptuous not to take the time that God has entrusted to us to prepare well, to teach well. And so here we have Nehemiah. He fasts, he mourns, he prays for four months. He prepares, he plots, he plans for four months. Then three more days, then he's building the wall. He's still praying, and he's got his trial, and he's got his sword. It's both and. Let me illustrate it this way. Some of you remember Reggie White. You remember him fondly. Reggie White was called the Minister of Defense, not only because he was a Baptist preacher, but because he was an incredible defender in football. And one particular day, uh, the opposing team had first down, and Reggie White did an inside move, and he got to the quarterback and sacked him. The next time, uh, he did a bull rush, and he put pressure on the quarterback who released the ball too early, incomplete. Third down, he did an outside move, got to the quarterback again, and he sacked him. Now the team was going for it, fourth down, going for it, and the blocker was a born-again Christian. And the blocker said to Reggie White, he said, Brother, I'm going to pray that you have compassion on me, because if you get to that quarterback one more time, I'm going to lose my job. And Reggie White smiled, and he said, Brother, Jesus loves you, and I love you, And prayer works. But if you don't learn to block, there ain't no way you're stopping me. (laughs) And that's what the book of Nehemiah is like. It's full dependence on God. It's prayer to God. But it's also picking up our trowel. And it's picking up our sword. If you and I are going to lead, we're going to face criticism. What do we do with the criticism? Nehemiah offers a few thoughts. The first is we evaluate the criticism. Some criticism is true. It's right. We need it. It's a gift from the Lord. So we can make a mid-course correction. We can repent. We can change. We can make remuneration if necessary. The second thing when we evaluate is we might find some of the criticism is not of us. It's of God. And we hand it on to God and we say, vengeance belongs to you, Lord. It doesn't belong to me. The third, when we face criticism, we press onward. We don't allow the hecklers to stop us. If God has laid something on our hearts, we move forward. We don't say, you know what, if the door isn't open, if the door's shut, God must not be in it. 
That's not always true. It's sometimes true. It's not always true. Sometimes he wants to build perseverance in our lives, and we need to keep going and keep going and keep going because God has laid it on our hearts. And finally, we are fully dependent on God in prayer, but we also bring the trial and the sword, and we get to work. That's the leadership of a man named Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we might be leaders like Nehemiah, that we might lead well with perseverance, that we might, when facing criticism, have the humility to evaluate the truthfulness and make mid-course corrections as appropriate, but not to allow the hecklers to stop what you have laid on our hearts. Give us perseverance that builds character, that leads to hope, that is used by you to impact a world. Make us into women and men like Nehemiah for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.